Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Bitcoin is not the original cryptocurrency. Bitcoin is widely known as the first crypto asset. And out of everything that's trading today, it's definitely the oldest but there was actually a series of experiments in crypto money that happened before Bitcoin and paved the way for the entire crypto industry that we have today. I'm not a financial advisor. <laughs> Decades of research and failed projects led to the creation of Bitcoin and many of the people involved with those projects, well, they were also involved with Bitcoin early on, or they were cited by Satoshi as inspirations. The earliest users of the internet could see the potential in this new technology, and many of them understood how important it could be for the global economy. They realized that if the internet was going to be a driving economic force, then it would need to have its own financial rails, and maybe even its own currency. One of the earliest attempts to financialize the internet was eCash, an anonymous digital currency that was created by a cryptographer named David Chomp and developed by his company, DigiCash. Chom first published the idea for eCash in a 1983 paper that talked about an anonymous electronic currency that could be sent between computers using special software. Unlike the decentralized cryptocurrencies that we know and love today, eCash needed cooperation from banks in order to work, which of course was a major barrier to mainstream adoption. In the United States, only one bank signed up for a test run of the technology. There was better luck in Europe, with about a half dozen banks actually adopting eCash. But this still wasn't enough. The idea was just too early. Even the mainstream market wasn't ready. Microsoft saw some potential in eCash and offered to buy DigiCash for $75 million, which was a massive offer for an internet startup at the time. Microsoft founder and antichrist Bill Gates apparently had plans to include eCash in Windows 95. If this deal had gone through, the development of the internet could have looked much different than it does today. Digital currency would have been a native function in personal computers from the very start of the internet age. But Chom asked for more money and Gates refused and pulled out of the deal altogether. Asking for more money was a bold move for Chom because DigiCash was struggling to find their place in the market at the time. He actually had a bit of a reputation for ruining deals by asking for more money. The same thing happened actually with Netscape. Eventually, his employees threatened to quit if he didn't step down and find another CEO because he kept on fumbling deals, but it was too late. 1998, DigiCash declared bankruptcy and sold all of its products and patents to a company called eCash Technologies. The employees of DigiCash probably hold a grudge to this day. But if you think about it, Chom's stubbornness saved the world from some very serious trouble. Imagine how dystopian the internet would be if Bill Gates and Microsoft were the center of every single online transaction. Even though eCash was a short-lived experiment that never fully got off the ground, very important innovations came out of this project and inspired a whole generation of programmers and cryptographers to create the ultimate digital money. David Chom went on to continue his work in cryptography, took a special interest in designing machines that would help make elections more transparent while protecting the privacy of voters. 
Around the time that Digicash was going under, a new currency called e-gold was starting to get some attention. E-gold was founded in 1996 by an oncologist named Douglas Jackson and an attorney named Barry Downey. The platform was an online business that allowed users to transfer gold and other precious metals. I wonder if they had digital gold coins, like our channel sponsor, Stake. Stake is the world's largest social casino where you can chat with other DJs and earn gold coins while you play. Visit the link in the description or scan the QR code on the screen to get your account started. Stake, fun, games, social chat, be in the cool kids club with me. Ben Armstrong Crypto X, powered by Stake. But this project took a slightly different approach than eCash. Jackson was not motivated by just money alone. He was a hardcore libertarian who truly believed that creating a system of gold-backed money would fix many of the problems in our economy. It was basically a ledger of gold that was held in the bank accounts of Gold and Silver Reserve, Inc., the company behind eGold, and customers were allowed to transfer money back and forth. As eGold grew, its founders decided to decentralize the governance and ownership of the physical bullion. In an early version of the DAOs that we see today in Web3, the bullion was held in a trust called the eGold Special Purpose Trust. They also published regular reports to their users with full transparency of their total holdings and the number and sizes of transactions. Within three years of its launch, eGold was recognized by the Financial Times as the only electronic currency that has achieved critical mass on the web. As the site grew in popularity, it started to become a target for hackers and scammers who used phishing techniques and vulnerabilities in browser software to steal passwords and other account information. The site also became a target for regulators who worried that it was being used for things like money laundering, drug smuggling, and fraud. Now, it is true that some criminals used the site, but they represented a very small percentage of eGold's user base. The staff of eGold also worked with law enforcement to identify and track down criminals that used the site. In the end, this was not enough because the government came down hard on eGold, filing a massive indictment against its founders in 2007 when the site was at its peak. The founders were charged with money laundering, conspiracy, and operating an unlicensed money transmitting business. The charges were brought because the website did not collect information on its users or implement any KYC policies, a process that became mandatory after the Patriot Act was passed in 2001. The founders of eGold were luckily able to avoid serious jail time, but the legal battle destroyed the eGold business and it went offline forever. When the site finally shut down in 2009, it had over 5 million accounts. The eGold case had a chilling effect on the digital currency scene forcing many developers to go underground, develop anonymous online identities, and continue their work in the shadows. For some of the big geeks and hackers, this was nothing new. There was a strong culture of privacy and anonymity in the early days of the internet, but this culture was not necessarily shared by the millions of normies who are coming online for the very first time. Now, in an interview with Forbes after the downfall of DigiCash, David Chom pointed out, as the web grew, the average level of sophistication of users dropped. It was hard to explain the importance of privacy to them. You see, these new mainstream users wanted something easy and PayPal filled that gap. As you probably know, PayPal is a simple payment processing tool that allows users to send instant transactions to other accounts after providing their bank account information. Now, unlike eGold or eCash, PayPal doesn't have its own native currency. Is just a digital wallet that allows users to send and receive fiat currency. Even though PayPal was a latecomer to the crypto industry, they're so important to mention because this was the company that first brought money online for the mainstream consumer. PayPal targeted the growing eBay market 
where users were still buying items online by mailing personal checks and money orders. PayPal solved a major problem for eBay users by allowing them to send money instantly, so the items could be shipped right away. Before PayPal, the seller had to wait for the buyer's check to come in the mail before sending the item. PayPal still faced many of the same problems that eGold did with hackers luring users into various scams and with criminals using the platform. But the company was careful to stay compliant with government regulations in the United States, especially when it came to KYC enforcement. By 2006, PayPal had already amassed over 100 million users, making it the most successful online payment platform in the entire world. And the company, well, they collected everyone's personal information. PayPal became so popular that it began changing social norms about buying online. After getting comfortable with PayPal, people were more likely to give their credit card information to other trusted online platforms like Amazon or Netflix, which paved the way for the massive economic boom in tech that followed. Unfortunately, this growth has come at a cost. All of our most sensitive financial and personal data is stored on centralized servers that have become a goldmine for hackers. According to a study by the online research group Comparatech, over 12,000 data breaches were reported in the United States between 2005 and June 2020. These breaches have led to millions of people having their identity stolen every single year, with no sign that the trend will slow down anytime soon. According to the Federal Trade Commission, identity theft cases have almost doubled between 2019 and 2020, rising from $1.8 billion in 2019, $3.3 billion in 2020, and then $5.8 billion in 2021. We trust the most popular apps and websites to protect our data because the businesses behind them are so powerful. But it's important to remember that our security and privacy isn't always a priority for these companies. In fact, their business model is to sell our data to the highest bidder in an arrangement that many critics have called surveillance capitalism. This term was coined by Shoshana Zuba, author of The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. This is a system where the products are free, but profits are generated through the capture and sale of data. Surveillance capitalism was pioneered by none other than Google, who was the first tech giant to introduce targeted advertising, but it is now the most common means of monetization on the internet. And it's not just advertisers that have access to this data either. Access is available to anyone willing to pay, including politicians, government agencies, stalkers, and hackers. These companies have proven that they can't be trusted with either our money or our data. Even if they were trustworthy, their platforms are still vulnerable to hackers ready to compromise our accounts. As PayPal was bringing personal finance online through a centralized platform, there was a rebellious group of developers who were trying to steer things in a different direction. And their solution was cryptography. Cryptography is one of the most important pieces of the internet's infrastructure. Even though a lot of people just think about it as an extra measure taken for secrecy. Without cryptography, hackers would have access to all of our email and social media messages, making financial applications like online banking entirely impossible. Cryptography has never been popular with governments though. Back in the early days of the internet, cryptography was one of the most controversial aspects of the new technology. Government agencies, especially in the United States, didn't want to go back to the days where they didn't know every single detail about everyone's life. The idea of people being able to encrypt their communications online terrified governments and threaten one of their most important sources of control, information. The U.S. government actually classified cryptography as a munition of war because they claimed that having the edge in developing or cracking cryptographic messages can tip the scales during times of war. The U.S. government and its allies had the strongest encryption in the world at the time, and they wanted things to stay that way. 
Computer experts knew that the internet was not going to work without encryption. After a while, the government eventually realized this too, but it also wanted the power to crack the codes. Regulators have harassed cryptographic developers since World War II, forcing them to release weaker versions of their products to the public so they could be easily cracked by government agencies. This was especially true for products that were sold overseas. Since the US government labeled encryption as a top secret weapon, developers were sometimes accused of threatening national security when they sold encryption software internationally. This is what happened to Phil Zimmerman, the creator of PGP, or Pretty Good Privacy Encryption, which was used to encrypt email conversations. PGP's encryption was too strong for the government to crack, and the software was distributed worldwide, which made Zimmerman public enemy number one with the US government and with the National Security Agency, or the NSA. Zimmerman was a true believer in cryptography and released the PGP software for free because he feared that the government would try to ban it. In 1993, Zimmerman was charged with violating the Arms Export Control Act. He was accused of threatening national security by exporting weapons, even though the only weapon he sold was computer code. Zimmerman was a part of a growing community online that was pushing for privacy and free speech online. They saw encryption as a free speech issue, and they believed that the Constitution gave them the right to publish any kind of code that they wanted. After all, computer code is a form of expression and speech. It's just a bunch of numbers and letters that people type on a computer. So a lot of developers argued that it was very similar to a printing press. Zimmerman published a book that contained the source code and began shipping it internationally as an act of protest against the government. This was an epic 40 chess move because if the government wanted to come down on him, they would have to ban a book, which would make the First Amendment argument very clear to everyone. It was also popular for privacy advocates to wear t-shirts with the source code printed on them and a trendy act of civil disobedience. Some people even went to lengths of wearing the t-shirts on international flights so they were technically guilty of exporting a top secret weapon. The government finally closed their investigation into Zimmerman in 1996 without pressing any charges. The case against Zimmerman backfired because it actually made PGB more popular and strengthened a community of online privacy advocates who were already beginning to organize themselves. Zimmerman was just one of many software developers who would go head to head with the government in the early 1990s. Even Netscape, one of the first internet browsers, was forced to create an entirely separate version of their software for international users that had weaker encryption than the US versions. A culture of resistance began to form among software developers at the time who saw encryption and privacy as a basic human right. The most radical programmers in those days subscribed to something called the cypherpunk email list. The name was a combination of the sci-fi cyberpunk genre and the word cypher, which basically means code. This was long before social media, back when most online communities used email lists to communicate. This community formed in 1992, just when the war on crypto was starting to heat up. It was started by a group of programmers and privacy advocates who regularly met in San Francisco to discuss the battle for online privacy. Eric Hughes, John Gilmore, Jude Milhan, and Timothy May are recognized as the founding members of the group. Eric Hughes handled most of the administration of the mailing list. He was also the author of the group's mission statement, A Cypherpunk's Manifesto, which advocates privacy, freedom of speech, and even digital money. John Gilmore is one of the founders of the Electronic Frontier Foundation, an organization that has been on the front lines of the battle for online freedom since the very early days. The very first cypherpunk meetings were also held in the headquarters for Cygnus Solutions, a company that Gilmore co-founded. Jude Milhan was a lifelong activist 
who was heavily involved in the civil rights struggles of the 1960s and was arrested for frequently organizing protests. She brought her activism to her job in programming, where she advocated for women in tech and other causes like the war on encryption. Though some say that Eric Hughes coined the term cyberpunk when publishing his manifesto, Timothy May claimed in his own manifesto, Cyphernomicon, that it was actually Jude Milhon that came up with the term. Timothy May was one of the most radical developers in the cyberpunk movement. He was a crypto anarchist to the core and thought the internet combined with strong cryptography could put the average citizen on a level playing field with the government. In 1994, he published the Cyphernomicon, which laid out the cyberpunk philosophy in detail. He made predictions about how the internet and cryptography changed the world and how these tools could be used for both good and evil. May argued that the good far outweighed the bad, and he believed that restricting important rights like privacy and free speech would be worse than any other negative outcome that this technology could create. Some of the most interesting predictions he made were about digital currency. 15 years before Bitcoin, May predicted that sophisticated financial alternatives to the dollar, various instruments, futures, and forward contracts would be made possible by cryptography. Cryptocurrency was actually an extremely popular topic on the cyberpunk mailing list, which grew to over 2,000 members by 1997. Cryptocurrency was seen as the holy grail of cryptography because it would allow people to transfer value, not just information across the internet safely and anonymously. There was a deep mistrust of government, fear of government surveillance, and the cyberpunk culture. These were the people who were building the future of the internet. So they understood just how dangerous and just how powerful this technology could be if it was abused by authority. With these concerns in mind, they did everything they could to build their systems in ways that empowered the average person. Cryptocurrency was a priority because it was obvious to those working in the industry that the financial system would eventually go digital, which could take society in an entirely dystopian direction if it wasn't handled carefully. If the financial systems that developed online were too easy to control or too centralized, oppressive regimes could easily shut down the accounts of anyone who stepped out of line and prevent them from interacting in the economy. To avoid this dystopian future, the cyberpunks dreamed of a decentralized, borderless, and private digital currency that operated with the same properties as cash or gold. They also probably dreamed of exchanges where we could trade these assets. They imagined platforms like our official exchange sponsor, Femex. Click the Femex link in the description or scan the QR code on the screen. Don't forget, speaking of privacy, grab your Palau e-residency program card so you can do KYC above board when your card comes in the mail and trade on Femex and a ton of other exchanges. That's how all the cool kids are trading these days. Many of the early Cyberpunk members started developing their own cryptocurrencies and shared their progress on the mailing list. The first attempt came from Adam Back, whose open source project Hashcash introduced proof-of-work mining as a mechanism for verifying digital coins. Although Hashcash used digital coins in its system and had cash in its name, it looked nothing like the cryptocurrencies of today. In the most simple terms, Hashcash was a system for preventing email spam. It required email users to spend a small amount of computational power in order to send their message, although under the hood, it was far more complex than that. In theory, the Hashcash algorithm would cause a wait time and power expense that would be unnoticeable to the average person, but it would be enough to prevent someone from sending thousands of emails at once. Backed and sometimes credited for coming up with the idea for proof of work, but it was actually an idea that had been circulating in technology publications for years. It's often actually traced back to Cynthia Dworks and Moni Nayer's 1992 paper, Pricing Via Processing or Combating Junk Mail. Back was still the first to execute on this idea, 
and he was the first to incorporate digital coins into a proof-of-work system, even though the coins were just used for internal operations and were not tradable or transferable. Bax Hashcash had trouble scaling and never really took off, but other cyberpunks took notice of how he incorporated proof-of-work into a system and realized that this function could be used to secure cryptocurrency. In 1998, another member of the cyberpunk mailing list, Nick Zabo, proposed a cryptocurrency called Bitcoin, which used a tweaked version of the Hashcash proof-of-work algorithm to verify digital money. Nick Zabo is also the initial creator of smart contracts, the technology that makes decentralized platforms like Ethereum possible. Bitgold was never actually built, but the revolutionary concept solved some major problems that had been challenging crypto programmers for years. Zabo proposed using proof-of-work in a decentralized way to solve the digital currency double-spend problem. This essentially means that it would prevent the creation of counterfeit cryptocurrency. With printed money, counterfeiting happens when someone is able to print bills that appear identical to legal tender. But over here in the cyberspace, someone can just tamper with the records of balances and transactions in order to produce as much money as they want. Previous digital currencies like DigiCash avoided the double spend problem with a centralized registry to keep track of the transactions. But this is a major weakness that could be vulnerable to an attack. For a cryptocurrency to be truly viable, it could not have a central point of failure. It would need to be decentralized, and there could be no single authority in control. Bitgold's proof-of-work system required computers solve a series of cryptographic puzzles in order to mint new coins. These puzzles also served to independently timestamp the creation of new money. Records of these results were to be stored across all of the computers that run the software, and they would each be verifying the activity on the network, keeping the other participants honest. Ultimately, Bitgold's fate was similar to many other early cryptocurrencies. It never came to fruition, but the concept laid the foundation for further innovation in the field. Now, in 1998, Wade Dye released an informal white paper describing his B-Money, a scheme for a group of untraceable digital pseudonyms to pay each other with money and to enforce contracts amongst themselves without outside help. Dai is best known for developing an open source library of cryptographic algorithms and code. He was also honored in the language of Ethereum, making him the namesake for the smallest subunit of Ether, the way. Hal Finney, a developer for the PGP Corporation, took the ideas about cryptography the cyberpunks were experimenting with at the time and built a model for a new digital cash proof of work system called Reusable Proof of Work, or ARPAL. Finney launched the software for ARPAL in 2004 this one didn't gain any traction either, but it added yet another piece to the puzzle and laid the foundation for more development in the crypto space, including Bitcoin. In our next history video, we'll dig into the game-changing invention that these cyberpunks inspired and the role they had in helping to take it mainstream. I wanna know what you think about the cyberpunks and some of the early experiments in crypto assets. Let me know down below in the comments and stay tuned for the story of how Bitcoin was created in a future video. Guys, make sure you hit the like button on your way out if you like this video. It helps us keep the lights on. Be blessed. Before Shopify, were you wondering, where are my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching.
<clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. 